This morning we begin a series of uh, undetermined length that I'm going to call Because You Asked. Because You Asked. And today we take up what, believe it or not, has been the most asked question of your pastor over the last 16 years of my time here at Kerrville Bible Church. A week or probably a month does not go by that I'm not asked this question. What do you think of cremation? And I always give a short answer, a very uh, summarized answer to that question. And then somewhere in my answer, I will always say, you know, I ought to preach a sermon on that. (laughs) Well, today I'm doing it. This is a one off sermon. It's going to be long. It's going to be a lot of information, but it can't be a series. okay? and we're going to deal with this question of cremation or burial. Now, on the one hand, it's good that this question is asked. It means you're thinking ahead. It means you're facing (laughs) reality. And I'm also not surprised that in a demographic such as Kerrville that I get this question so very often. On the other hand, this question is uh, for us a sad reminder of reality, isn't it? It is a sad reminder of this life is not going to last forever and we need to be making plans for the inevitable. I also have wondered, as I've thought much about this subject this week, if perhaps the reason I am asked this question so often is that people lack a certain peace and comfort with the cremation choice. Nobody is asking me, what do I think about burial? I'm asked what I think about creation, uh, cremation. And and I think I'm asked that because there's a little twinge of something going on there that makes that question come out. We also have to recognize here at the beginning that this would not be a question apart from sin and apart from death. Just by way of reminder, as we try to root ourselves in the scriptures, we need to remember that death is sometimes in the Bible a direct punishment for specific sins. In fact, Genesis 2.17, God speaking to Adam and Eve, Adam there, he says, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die And the day they ate from it, they did die. They died spiritually instantly. They began to die physically. We also know from the Bible that death is always a general punishment for general sinfulness. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, speaking of Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so God's pronouncement and punishment for sin in general is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Psalm 90 reminds us of our pending death and God's role in it. Part of Psalm 90 says, uh, speaking of God, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. You, God, have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep 
a biblical euphemism for death. For we have been consumed by your anger. For all our days have declined in your fury. Seventy or eighty years of labor and sorrow and then, quote, it is gone and we fly away. We know from Isaiah 40, it reminds us of the ultimate cause of every death. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. James 4.14 reminds us of the brevity of life. He says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So there are three lessons for us at this juncture in this part of the introduction of this message. Three lessons now. Number one, never be surprised by death. Never be surprised by death. It is always God's general punishment for man's general sinfulness. From the miscarriage to the nursing home, death should never shock us. Whether it's a crime or war or terrorism or creation groaning through earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis, we should never be caught off guard by the presence and intrusion of death. Second lesson. You and I need to make physical plans for death. That could be a whole sermon in itself. We need to make physical plans for death. We need to plan for our not being here and what that means for our families, whether that's insurance, whether that's burial plots, whether that's making arrangements and and having served your spouse by having those things mapped out in advance. We must make physical plans for death. Thirdly, and most important lesson here, just at this juncture, we must make spiritual plans for death, spiritual plans for death. We must come to a place where we're at peace with God through Jesus Christ to face the inevitable, because every life will end and we will stand before God Almighty and there will be a judgment. And we're either going to be judged for our sins or our judgment fell on Christ. Those are the only options. And so we must make spiritual plans by Receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and being prepared then to die and face our maker. Without Christ on our side, without Christ as our refuge, we are not prepared to meet our maker. But once the inevitable has happened and death has visited an individual, then that individual before they have died and certainly that individual's family after they have died is faced with the question of how to deal then with the body. The remains and this really falls under the making physical plans for death. And that brings us to the question of the sermon cremation or burial. And I want to recast the discussion this morning. I want to recast the discussion by changing that to this question, burning or burial, burning or burial. The word cremation is a word much like the word abortion. It actually covers up what is going on. Instead of saying abortion, if we said the dismemberment of a human being in the womb, we might think of it differently, right? It's also a word like the word suicide, not a pleasant word, but a fairly recent word. If we use the word self-murder, we might think a little differently about suicide, 
Well, today I want to recast this discussion of taking out this just vanilla, generic kind of candy coated word of cremation and use the word burning. Now, put yourself in my shoes. You're asked this question all the time. Where do you begin to answer this question? Where do you begin? Well, I can tell you where we do not begin. We do not begin with our culture. We do not begin with our feelings. And we do not begin with our checkbook. Let's begin with the Bible. The way I did this was then a word search. This is how I thought, how else do you begin without finding out what the Bible perhaps says about this subject? And so I did a word search of a word group. And the word group is burial, buried, burying, and bury. And that group of four words is used in our Bible 162 times. It's a huge number. I looked at all of them. (laughs) And what you find then is a clear biblical pattern of burial. In fact, you find a regular who's who of great Bible characters that God goes to great lengths to tell us that this individual was in fact buried. (laughs) Sarah was buried by Abraham. Abraham was buried by his sons Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was buried by his sons Esau and Jacob. Jacob was buried by his son Joseph. But not in Egypt. You know, it'd be like a Texan visiting California and dying out in California. And you say, you better get my body out of California and bury it in Texas. Right. That was Jacob. And Joseph then went to great lengths. You read about this in Genesis. He went to great lengths to make sure Jacob was buried in the land of Canaan at the very same site that Abraham and Sarah are buried and Isaac and Rebekah. Later, Joseph himself would die in Egypt and his bones would be carried out and buried in the land of Canaan. Of course, there's a lot else going on there as God is showing that he has given this land to this people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and his descendants, and they will be buried in this land as a token of that gift that God had given them. We learn in the Bible that Miriam and Aaron were buried. We learn that Moses was buried by the Lord himself, burying the body of Moses. Joshua is said to have been buried. Many of the judges, Samuel, David, Solomon, many of the kings, the great prophet Elijah, John the Baptist was beheaded in prison and his disciples came and got his body and buried it. Of course, our Lord Jesus was buried by his disciples and Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was buried by his brethren. We learn as we study this word that our final resting place, the folks in the Bible often spoke of the respect that they had earned in life. You have a phrase called a donkey's burial versus a proper burial. You have sayings such as this was a choice burial site versus a not so choice burial site. You have the burial of common people versus kings who were buried in the city of David. But not all of the kings were buried in the city of David. And not all of the kings were buried where some of the kings were buried. If you've committed evil, you got treated a little differently than those who had done good. And in some cases, there's no burial at all. The evil Jezebel, in fact, God commanded, was not to be buried. 
But rather, dogs were allowed to do what dogs do to Jezebel's body as a sign of God's judgment and wrath upon her and her evil. And all they left behind was her skull, her feet and the palms of her hands. The Bible tells us. Psalm 79, 3 speaks of the sad state of affairs for God's people, the Jews. They had been invaded by their enemies. The temple had been defiled. Jerusalem lay in ruins. And apparently, maybe the worst part of all is the dead bodies of God's saints, the godly ones. Through this invading army, the dead bodies were not given a proper burial. In fact, they were given to the birds and the beasts. And the Bible tells us, quote, and there was no one There was no one to bury them. Jeremiah, the prophet, takes up that reality that he witnessed with his own eyes. And many times throughout his writings, Jeremiah interprets the lack of burial of God's people there in that invasion time as a sign of God's judgment on evil Israel. He took that as a token representation of how God felt about Israel's apostasy. So as we look at these words, the conclusion we can make is the Bible assumes burial under normal circumstances. And a lack of burial can mean disrespect for an individual all the way up to God's judgment on a people or an individual. The other word I looked up then, obviously, uh, once you're past the burial word group, is the word burn. Burned or or burning. And this word is used hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible, as you would expect, because of all of the burnt offerings of Israel. The book of Leviticus going through all of that. As we look at that word, we learn that God's anger is said to burn. In the Bible, we see that fire is often a picture. Fire is often a picture of judgment and wrath of God. In fact, over and over and over again, God's wrath is described as burning fire that cannot be quenched. Like Matthew 3.12 that says he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We ask the question, is there cremation in the Bible? Is there cremation in the Bible? And the answer is yes. There are several. And I'm going to share these with you now take you to a scripture of a very interesting story of cremation. In the Bible, we have the Israelites were commanded to burn their graven images with fire. They were commanded to burn their graven images with fire. We know that pagans around the nation of Israel, pagans would actually offer their living children as sacrifices to their gods on fires and then Cremate their bodies there. First Kings 13. This is interesting. First Kings 13 tells us that the burning of human bones was a sign of God's judgment on some rebellious priests. On some rebellious priests. This was part of Josiah. King Josiah's reforms there. We learn that King Saul, the apostate King Saul and his sons were burned And then their bones were actually buried. And we're not told there why they were burned first before the burial of the bones. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 23. 
Second Kings is before First and Second Chronicles. It's after First and Second Samuel. Second Kings chapter twenty-three. And here are some of these reforms under Josiah, a righteous king in Israel, during their days of uh, great apostasy away from the Lord. I'll pick it up in verse 4 of 2 Kings 23. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and he burned it at the brook Kidron, and he ground it to dust, and he threw its dust on the graves of the common people. Drop down to verse 15. Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, Jeroboam, very bad king, Made Israel sin that this altar that he had made, even that altar in the high place, Josiah, he broke it down. Then he demolished its stones, ground them to dust and burned the Asherah. Now, when Josiah turned. This is where it gets interesting here. When Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain and he sent and he took the bones from the graves of these Rebellious priests, and he burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. Verse 17, then he said, Josiah, so there'd been a prophet there, proclaimed some things. He did what the prophet said. Then he said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things, which you have done against the altar of Bethel. He said, verse 18, let him alone, let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places, which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made provoking the Lord. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel, all the priests of the high places who were There he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's basically the data of Scripture. The word searches of burial and buried and the word searches of burn and burning. And and that's kind of where we're left. We're left with description, not prescription. We're left with. Here's what happened, not chapter and verse commands of here's what you must do or must not do. And we are left here now, 21st century, with what is a very sensitive question. And I want to just make sure you know that I know that. (laughs) 
This is a very sensitive issue. I have no desire this morning whatsoever to heap guilt on anyone for any past decision that was made in good faith. None. And neither does neither would God. Any past decision made in good faith. In fact, I will say, as we're still now in the introduction of this sermon, I will say that this message is not about the past. It's about the future. This message is not for the dead. It is for the living. And that's how we must look at it. What I want to do in this message is give you my personal conviction based on biblical principles based on church history, and based on much thought and much research. And I'm going to be very plain with you right up front. Get all of my cards on the table. Here is my objective. My objective is to persuade you as a believer to choose burial for yourself and for your loved ones as the most appropriate way to deal with the human body in the most God-honoring way. That's my objective. I had that opinion way before this sermon. I've had this opinion since I became a Christian. I've had this conviction since I came to know the Lord. But I can tell you after this week that it is stronger and I'm more convinced than ever. In fact, I was going to talk about it in very soft terms of preferences and those kind of things. And the more I think about it, the longer I dwell on it. I just don't feel a sense of freedom and liberty to talk about it in those terms. But in talk about it instead in terms of conviction. I got to see uh, some folks we know, uh, Blair and Aaron, yesterday down in New Braunfels. And Brian and Becky Moss, and they're all settled in. And went to the Spurs game last night, and Brian was there with me. And we were watching a, a blowout, and so we were just basically talking and visiting. And uh, I said, guess what I'm preaching on tomorrow? He said, what? And I, and I told him. And his first, thought was, his first comment was, well, what does it matter? What we do with the body. And I said, oh, Brian, it matters. It always matters what happens to a human body. Always. And as we began to talk, he was like, you know, I have never thought about this. And I said, and he's 30 something years old. I said, you know what? I would imagine that everybody your age and below has probably never thought about this. And so some of you may here today be thinking about stuff you've never thought of before in your life. Some of you may be wrestling with it. Some of you may be dealing with it and thinking about it almost on a daily basis. I want to try to convince you to make a certain type of choice. One more qualification before we get into then the message, the meat of the message. Please do not equate my thoughts and convictions as condemnation or a desire in any way to ostracize anyone. My disapproval of a certain approach does not mean rejection of you. It does not mean condemnation of those who choose differently or have chosen differently. So make sure you hear that. All right, I want to give you six reasons then why I think Christians should choose burial over burning. It's going to be a lot of information. I certainly do not expect you to remember all of these details. It'll be on our website if you need a refresher. Uh, I just want to get it all out there at one time (laughs) and really be done with uh, with this question. We're going to build from lesser to greater. Six reasons. 
Number six will be the most important. Number one is the least important. Number one, the origins of cremation. The origins of cremation. They give me pause as to this approach. In human history, we find that burial was practiced among God's people, the Jews, and burning among Gentiles. Gentiles also practice burial, but they practice both. The Jews would have never practiced a burning. Hinduism, for example, a false religion, a religion filled with the doctrines of demons. Hinduism prescribes, demands cremation. In fact, today in India, open air is preferred of their cremation. Cremation was common in both ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And it was common because they had a false belief about the human soul. They said the human soul was the whole person. That's all that really mattered. Flesh is evil. Flesh is bad. We don't even want to. It's inhibitive. And the human soul is trapped in a prison of the human body. And so we want to release the soul through means of burning. And that would release this imprisoned soul. That was their that was what rooted their belief in cremation. What's interesting is cremation all but vanishes wherever Christianity had influence. That's throughout the history of Christianity. Wherever it spread, wherever it had influence, you would see the great drastic reduction of cremation. But then fast forward to the 1800s, the age of the Enlightenment, coming out of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the age of the Enlightenment, And you had a group of rationalists and free thinkers who began to advocate in the 1800s for cremation once again. In some cases, they did so particularly to make a statement. They want to say, we want to make a statement against the resurrection of the body and against the afterlife. In some cases, they were doing this for purely pragmatic reasons. In the 1870s in in England... An organized movement began to reinstate cremation, and it was began and led mostly by unbelieving medical doctors and medical professors who were claiming sanitary reasons for this practice. Then in the 18 uh, during this time, there was a man by the name of Sir Henry Thompson. He was a major advocate. Listen to his arguments for this. Okay, here's what he argued. He said it would reduce the expense of funerals. It would spare mourners the necessity of standing exposed to the weather during a burial service. And the urns would be safe from vandalism where the graves weren't. Those were his major reasons. Eventually, a cremation society was formed in London to advocate for its lawful use. Finally, legalization happened through the eccentric activities of a neo-Druidic priest... By the name of William Price. What is Neo-Druidism? Neo means new. Druidism is an ancient pagan religion philosophy of life. It's still present today. You can go look and see pictures of Druid priests at Stonehenge and other type places. It is a form of spirituality. Listen carefully. This is important as to why this happened, why this came about. Neo-Druidism is a form of spirituality that promotes harmony and worship of nature. Harmony and worship and respect for all beings, including the environment and the earth and the dirt. And so this man, William Price, his first child was born and then his first child died very, very young. It was in 1884. 
William Price, because he was a neo-Druid priest, he believed that it was wrong to bury a corpse. He believed that burying a corpse actually polluted the earth. And so he decided to cremate his son's body and to force the issue legally. There was nothing on the books in London that said this is against the law and there was nothing that said this is legal. It was just this gray area. And he said, I'm going to force the issue on the people. The service there that he conducted was accompanied by pagan prayers that we would expect from a neo-Druidic priest. How about the USA? Well, it came here through the work of a man by the name of Francis Lemoyne. He built the first crematorium in the United States of America in 1876. He believed, and there are other people believe, that people were getting sick from going to funerals. They also believe that decomposing bodies were leaking into the water systems. And so their argument was, again, sanitation. Timothy George is a church historian and theologian. He summarizes then the origins. The first cremation in America took place in 1876. It was accompanied by readings from Charles Darwin and the Hindu scriptures. For many years, relatively few persons chose cremation. So that's my first argument. The origins of it certainly make me uncomfortable. Number two, church history. Church history or Christian history. We aren't the first people who have thought about this subject, all right? We didn't just come along here and, and Christianity just began in our generation, okay? We're part of something that reaches back 21 centuries. Did you know that anthropologists can actually trace the movement of Christianity throughout Europe by the presence of cemeteries? Cemeteries were the evidence that Christians lived in a particular place, In fact, with the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, by the 5th century, burning bodies had disappeared from Europe completely and was actually forbidden by law. In fact, it was punishable by death if it was combined with heathen rites and rituals. That's how Christianized, if you will, the Roman Empire had become. Because of the presence and the very strong presence of the Roman Catholic Church during that time, we need to look at their stance on this issue because it was certainly influential and representative of the Anglo-Saxon world at large, the Western civilization at large. And in fact, I think you might hear some many things here you would agree with. The stance then at, at this time from the 5th century on up till Well, I'll get there in a moment. For a long time, the Roman Catholic Church believed this. The body was not a mere receptacle for a spirit that was the real person. But the body was an integral part of the human person. They looked on the body as sanctified by the sacraments and itself the temple of the Holy Spirit. And thus requiring to be disposed of in a way that honors and reveres the human body. They originally saw burning as pagan in origin, as an insult to the body, as sacrilegious toward Christians and blasphemous toward God, as it declared, in many cases, this was the whole desire, a disbelief in the resurrection of the body. 
Fast forward to 1886. Some Masonic groups advocated cremation as a means of rejecting Christian belief in the resurrection. The Holy See forbade Catholics to practice cremation. That was 1886. If you know your history, you know that the world was in great turmoil in the late 1800s with the Enlightenment, with industrialization, with the creation of cities. Crime and poverty and all kinds of things were going on in, in world history. And you fast forward over the next hundred years to, eight, uh, to 1963. Again, we're just walking through the history of the Roman Catholic Church on this issue. 1963, 1960s. It was then that they recognized that cremation was being sought for practical purposes and not as a denial of bodily resurrection. And so the choice of cremation was permitted in many circumstances after essentially 1500 years of one practice. They began to open that door in 1963 at the Second Vatican Council. The Pope lifted the ban on cremation. And in 1966, Catholic priests were allowed to officiate. At cremation ceremonies. Here is their current stance. It's the 1983 Code of Canon Law. It states this. The church earnestly recommends the pious custom of burial be retained. But it does not forbid cremation unless this is chosen for reasons which are contrary to Christian teaching. Like the sacredness of the human body or the resurrection of the dead. By the way, I found this interesting. The Roman Catholic Church today, though many people who are Catholics will disregard this. They require a reverent disposition of the remains of cremation. They require that they be buried or entombed, that they cannot be scattered and they cannot be kept in your home. I, for one, totally agree with that. I just both images of keeping or scattering are unsettling uh, images in, in my mind, in, in my belief. That was the Catholic side of things. What about Protestant churches? Well, again, the, the, the common practice throughout all of Christianity until the 1800s was burial. And here are some quotes I want to share with you from some Protestant branches of the church uh, during these times. An early Methodist tract entitled Immortality and Resurrection said this. Burial is the result of a belief in the resurrection of the body, while cremation anticipates its annihilation. In 1874, the Methodist Review noted that, quote, three thoughts alone would lead us to suppose that the early Christians would have special care for their dead. Number one, the Jewish origin of the church. Number two, the mode of burial of their founder. Number three, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. From these considerations, this uh, Methodist Review goes on. The Roman custom of cremation would be most repulsive to the Christian mind. Here's a here's a writing by a night by, by a Lutheran pastor, 1902. 1902 as to cremation. This is not a biblical or Christian mode of disposing of the dead. The Old and New Testament agree and take for granted that as the body was taken originally from the earth, so it is to return to the earth again. Burial is the natural and Christian mode. There is a beautiful symbolism in it. The whole terminology of eschatology presupposes it. Cremation is purely heathenish. It was the practice among the Greeks and Romans. 
The mass of the Hindus thus dispose of their dead. It is dishonoring to the body intended for a temple of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, and to bear the image of God. It is an insidious denial of the doctrine of the resurrection. That's how this particular Lutheran pastor would have seen it in 1902. Well, today, obviously, we know Protestants, Catholics, uh, Christians of all uh, brand sorts uh, have accepted it. And there's widespread use among Christians of it. John Piper, who recently read a blog on this that was shared with me just this week, uh, kind of summarizes Christian history well. He says, where Christians are a small minority, cremation is high. Where Christian influence is giving way to rapid secularization, cremation is rapidly increasing. He gives some examples, quoting from Wikipedia, and a lot of my materials from Wikipedia as well. Almost everyone adhering to Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, and Jainism cremate their dead. In Japan, in 2008, the cremation rate was 99.85%. In fact, I think it's a law in Japan. I think it's required in Japan. In the United Kingdom, in 1960, 35%. By 2008, 73%. Our neighbor to the north, not Oklahoma, <laughs> Canada. <laughs> 1970, 6%. 2009, 68%. So that's the history of it as far as church history, Christian, Christianity. My third reason. This will be very short. My third reason for advocating for burial is that the main reason, in fact, the, probably the only reason that I've heard that Christians advocate for cremation is that it's cheaper. And I would say to you that that reason is not valid. That is not a valid reason. Let me pose it to you another way. If cremation and burial were the exact same cost, which would you choose? The only reason I've ever heard a Christian say, I think I want to do cremation is just because it's cheaper. It's not cheap. It's just cheaper. And there's not that great of a huge difference if you try to be modest and frugal in general. There are two main reasons that cremation is increasing in America, and that is the secularization of our culture and money. Money. John Piper says this, fewer people test the practice with biblical criteria and more people want the cheapest solution. I would just ask you if that's your number one argument. Did you buy the cheapest cell phone possible? Or the cheapest car you could buy or the cheapest couch you could buy? Did you do you buy the absolute cheapest food you could possibly buy and survive on? See, that is not a valid argument for this practice in my estimation. Fourth reason, again, increasing in importance would be the dignity of the human body. This is a critical factor. We are made in God's image. The human body from conception to the grave and beyond has intrinsic value and intrinsic dignity that adheres to 
human beings and human beings alone. I just share with you this illustration. If, if you were to find a dead deer in the road, you would think nothing of someone. And I've done it myself here on Harper Road because they're, they're out here all the time of walking up to that dead deer, grabbing it by the hooves, dragging it over to the side of the road and tossing it into a ditch. Going back to work and think nothing of it. But if that was a dead human being, you would stop. You would call authorities. Everything changes, right? You don't even have to think about it. You would never do that. You would never say that would never cross our minds to do with a person. You see, what you do, what we do with the human body always matters. It always matters. And I would argue that there's a line out there for everybody. That there is a line of dignity slash and then on the other side, indignity. We all have a line. The question is, where are we going to draw the line? See, God made these bodies and God loves these bodies and God will raise the body forever. Proclaiming its dignity forever. And as Christians, we now house the Holy Spirit in these bodies Here's another argument. I know this is this is stark, but I think we need to think about it in these terms. I believe that if you had to, you could probably lower your loved one into the ground at a burial service. But could you hit the button to start the fires of cremation? Could you watch? You know, some crematoriums have places where people can watch because Hindus require it. A burial and the decomposition that follows is passive and it's gradual and it just seems more natural. It seems more dignified. Burning is rapid and it's even violent. In fact, I told this to Brian last night as we were talking about it. I said, I have a common denominator. These things are not the same. Don't, I'm not equating these three things. But there is a common denominator in my mind as how I view these three things. Abortion, euthanasia, and cremation. And the common denominator is the dignity of the human body. Now, again, this cremation is not the same as abortion and euthanasia. But there is a dignity that adheres to a body created in God's image. John Piper makes this comment. He says the greatest thing that can be said about the human body is that the eternal son of God was incarnate in a human body and will have one forever. Today in heaven, Jesus has the body he had on earth glorified. So the dignity of the human body is a very important principle in this. And it's the one that is, as I was sharing with you, the, the Catholic Church view that they bring up over and over again uh, in this discussion. Fifth reason. We're getting there. Hang in there with me. Fifth reason. The process of burning is dreadful and unsettling. And the image is inappropriate for believers. I want to quote Piper one more time. He says the use of fire to consume the human body on earth was seen as a sign of contempt. It was not a glorious treatment of the body, but a contemptuous one. This is the meaning of Achan's cremation. That was one I left out. Achan, there at Jericho. He had betrayed Israel and so was not only stoned with his family, but deprived of an ordinary burial by being burned. 
Piper goes on, he says, as a Christian who believes in the judgment of God after death, the last symbol we want to use in connection with death is fire. Hell, Gehenna is a place of fire. Matthew 5.22, James 3.6. You know, when I've preached a sermon about and against abortion, it's a very unsettling kind of sermon, but I've done that here. More than once. I have felt led of God in those times to speak about what actually happens in abortion. So that you have a clear understanding. Of that heinous sin. Now, this is not the same category, but I think it warrants. Because I'm not going to assume that you're all going to go do the research that I've done. I think it warrants that I tell you what happens in cremation. So that you, if you make this choice, you, you know what is going to take place. The body is put in a box that is placed in what's called the retort and it's incinerated at a temperature of 1400 to 2100 Fahrenheit. During the cremation process, the greater portion of the body, the organs and other soft tissues is vaporized and oxidized by the intense heat. Gases released are discharged through the exhaust system. Some of the body inevitably mixes and remains behind, mixes with other previously cremated bodies and remains behind in the crematorium. It's impossible for it to be any other way. It takes one hour per 100 pounds of the body. Implanted devices are required to be removed. A pacemaker can explode, damage the crematorium. Potentially injure nearby staff. Spinal cord stimulators have to be removed. Implanted drug reservoirs can produce smaller explosions. Contrary to popular belief, the cremated remains are not ashes in the usual sense. After the incineration is completed, the dry bone fragments are swept out of the retort and pulverized by a machine called a cremulator. This is essentially a high-capacity, high-speed blender or grinder. And it's required to process them, the bones, into ashes or cremated remains. This grinding takes 20 minutes and it yields four to six pounds of cremains. And I ask you, how is any of that dignifying? I'm telling you, there's a line. I want to warn you this morning about a new process because it'll be... Our generation's cremation. There's a new process that's legal in 13 states. It's based on alkaline hydrolysis. The human body is placed in a chamber that is then filled with a mixture of water and lye. It's heated to a temperature of 320 degrees, but at high pressure, which prevents boiling. Instead, the body is effectively broken down into its chemical components, and this takes three hours. The end result is a quantity of green, brown, tinted liquid and soft, porous white bone that is easily crushed to form a white colored dust. The liquid is then disposed of either through the sanitary sewer system or through some other method, including a use in a garden or a green space. This is legal in 13 states. This alkaline hydrolysis process has been championed by a number of ecological groups. Sound familiar? 
They're championing this process because it uses one eighth of the energy of a flame based cremation, which uses 25 gallons of fuel. And cremation produces, well, this process produces less carbon dioxide, less pollutants and no mercury emissions. Cremation produces much of all of those. As of 2007, that's an old date, but best I could find, 1,000 people had chosen this method in the United States. When alkaline hydrolysis was proposed in New York State, the New York State Catholic Conference condemned the practice. They said that it does not show sufficient respect for the intrinsic dignity of the human body. It's not legal in Texas. It's legal in 13 states. You can guess which ones. Sixth and final reason, most important reason, most joyful reason, and that is the appropriate image of a burial, and a burial service. One of my personal convictions on this issue is I want there to be a burial service because there are things that can be said at a burial service that are most appropriate in that setting. Well, there are two wonderful, glorious moments of symbolism for the believer when it comes to burial. Number one, it is like we are sowing a seed in the ground and we're going to await its germination. It's blooming. It's coming forth from the ground in new life. This is what the Bible teaches. First Corinthians 15. When you what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. So Paul is now commenting on a burial service, on the bearing of a Christian. And he says, you're bearing a bare kernel, perhaps of, like of wheat or some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. It's not to say God's not going to resurrect every body. He will, no matter how the body was disposed. That's not the issue. Okay? That is not the issue. You can be eaten by sharks, become part of a plant. God will bring it all together. He'll resurrect it. That's no problem for God. The issue is the symbolism. The symbolism of the burial. The other thing that we see in symbolism is it's like this person is taking a nap. The Bible uses sleeping as a euphemism for Christian death. And it's as if they're just sudden, they're just taking a nap and suddenly the trumpet will sound and the alarm will go off and they'll wake up and they'll come out of the ground and out of the tomb and out of the coffin. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians four in the great passage about the rapture of the church speaks of this waking up from a nap, if you will. First Thess four verses fifteen and sixteen. Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Timothy George says this, quote, uh, early Christian grave sites were called cemeteria, from where we get cemeteries, which literally means sleeping places. Reflecting a belief in the future resurrection. You see, given the imminent return of Christ, <coughs> we go to the burial service. We've conducted the service and now we're walking to our cars and the trumpet could sound and the dead in Christ could rise before we get to our car. See, that's what Christians have believed. And that's what burial symbolizes. It's not the end. God is going to reverse this activity in time. In fact, I would say this. Every burial service of a believer can be a three point sermon. Number one, God is sovereign and ordained this person's number of days. Nothing could be done to keep them alive any longer when they reach their final day of appointment. Number two, God is just and this death is deserved. Every burial can say that God is just and this death is deserved. And then number three, God is merciful and this burial will be reversed at the rapture of the church. I've done many burial services and lots of times there's unbelieving families and there's people there who have never even heard of the rapture. They don't even know what you're talking about. Here is your opportunity to talk about it. Let me come to your burial and talk about the rapture to your family, to your friends, that God is going to reverse this act in time. So here are my six regions, reasons, origins, Christian history. Money is not everything. Dignity of the human body. The dreadfulness and the inappropriate image of burning. And the symbolism and the appropriate image of burial. I close with this very practical counsel. I would encourage you to be modest and good stewards regarding cost of funerals. Dignified does not have to mean excessively expensive. I would encourage you to choose burial and begin to save or insure or pay in advance so that the money issue is not an issue. Next, have your casket. This is my personal belief, my personal opinion, my personal counsel to you. If you care, here it is. Have the casket present at the funeral. Have the funeral at church. Have a burial service after the funeral. And then maintain the gravesite as you are able. That, to me, is the best case scenario where we are able to do it. Let's pray. Father, back to where we started, the most important pressing issue of the moment is are we spiritually prepared to die? Are we spiritually prepared to face an eternity? We know from the Bible that there are only two ultimate destinations. New heavens and a new earth where you dwell with your people. Or a place called the lake of fire. That you have prepared for the devil and the demons. So Father, I pray this morning as we have talked about this issue of dealing with the human body, that no one would miss the more pressing matter of dealing with an immortal soul. 
and coming to terms with the gospel message of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.